0: What kind of work do you do? I'm an entrepreneur. What does that mean? I mean, I know what the word means. What in what way are you an entrepreneur? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a singer and songwriter, model, mogul, um, dancer, performer. I go, you know, different places to try to make a living for myself. So, it's like entrepreneurship, like going out and doing what you want to do for your life. And who do you live with? Right now, I'm currently just living at home right now with my family. Who is your family? Um, different people. I have like, um, you know, different family members. So many different family members that I have. You
1: know, no, I want to know who you're living with now
0: right now. I'm like where I'm living well, with my mom or like, um, you know, my, my mom, my stepfather, my <laughs> stepbrother, have so many, relatives. That's, not
2: a hard, that's not a hard question, sir. Yeah, if for somebody sure. somebody who
0: question, are you yeah. living
2: with and you said family, it's not a personal question if you're living with family, I just
1: ask you what family you're living with. It, it's not awkward. I live with my mother. I live with my brother. I live with my sister.
2: That's not a hard question, sir.
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So at least I at least I can cancel you out. Blasphemy.
0: <laughs> Maybe it was your sister. Yeah, probably,
1: yeah. or my mom is one, or my yeah. wife.
0: One other thing I wanted to mention that's incredibly important, personally, especially you know for this audience, is fundamentally what hospitals do is three things. One of the hardest things with the business has been the growth, the employee growth, and I never want to be that person, that entrepreneur, who people can say like. Hey, he's changed. I'm Grant Morgan. I'm the co founder and CEO of R Zero Systems. I'm 32 years old and I'm located in San Francisco, California.
1: And what's your company?
0: My company's R Zero. So, R Zero is a biosafety company and we exist to help our customers create safer spaces and ultimately reduce sick days long term. So, we're modernizing this archaic industry that has been dominated by commodity chemical manufacturers for 100 plus years and injecting technology, innovation, and doing infection prevention more effectively and efficiently than it's ever been done before.
1: So I'm looking at your website. I guess if anyone want to check it out while we're talking right now, what's your website?
0: Our website's com. You spell out the word zero, so it's the letter R and then Z-E-R-O.com.
1: I just thought about that. Do people actually put the number zero sometimes? I think so. I've never thought about putting that yeah. number in there. That's funny.
0: Well good. I hope it's more intuitive, but it's actually a play off of the scientific term R not, which is actually R and the, the number zero, which it's basically a measure of how infectious a disease is. With your company, does it look
1: like is it one product
0: basically? Right now it's one product. We wanted to get something to market as fast as possible during the pandemic and help as many people as as we possibly could. And so speed was the name of the game. And we have a suite of other products that we're working on right now that are going to complement the current product.
1: What does this product do? Because it's pretty cool. That's why I wanted people to check out the website too. I mean, your visuals are pretty cool to see what it actually does.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, we're really proud of the way it looks. I think it's beautiful. It's iconic. Everything else in the space is sort of industrial and and kind of scary. But to answer your question about what it does, so ARC is the name of the product. And ARC is a hospital-grade UVC disinfection device. So the idea is it emits light at a specific wavelength, And that wavelength penetrates cell walls of all kinds of different microorganisms, from fungi to mold, viruses, and bacteria. And it disrupts the bonds in the RNA and the DNA of those different microorganisms, and it renders them incapable of reproducing or infecting humans. So the way it works is essentially you walk it into a room, or roll it into a room rather, and you plug it into a wall, set a timer, and you hit go. And it runs for three to seven minutes, depending on the size of the room, and it disinfects everything. So we can achieve truly hospital-grade disinfection, so 99.99% or more of any sort of microorganism in about a seven-minute cycle or less.
1: If someone's not looking at it visually, I'm trying to think of the best way to say what it looks like. I'm sure you have a better way of saying it, because that's what I'm trying to figure out, what this thing looks like, if you want
0: to describe it just audio-wise. That's a good question. We've heard a lot of different descriptions of it, a lot of creative ones, but fundamentally, it's a light bulb on wheels with a timer. It's about six and a half feet tall. It's got giant five and a half foot light bulbs running kind of floor to ceiling, so to speak. It's got four wheels and it's mobile and you can kind of push it around via one of the two handles on it. And so we sometimes when we've wheeled it around in public and people have kind of stopped and said, hey, what is that? We've heard a lot of interesting responses, but people have said it looks like R2-D2, like a giant R2-D2 or some sort of like a droid. But a lot of Star Wars references, ironically, I guess,
1: Yeah. No, I could definitely see that. Yeah. And the light bulbs, if you're looking at it, they kind of look like those old fluorescent, I guess, ones that you'd see just the shape of them. I'm sure it's obviously something different or maybe
0: it is the same, but... You actually nailed it. They're exactly fluorescent light bulbs. And what's crazy to us when we jumped in and started this business and started figuring out what technology we wanted to bring to market. UVC is actually over a century old technology. In fact, the 1903 Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded to a guy named Niels Finsen for the use of UVC to treat lupus. And fundamentally, you produce it with the fluorescent light bulb. The biggest difference is fluorescent light bulbs, like the ones you see in your ceiling of any sort of commercial space, they have this white phosphorus coating, and it actually converts the UVC energy into visible light. So our bulbs just don't have that white coating. There's a few different nuance differences, but fundamentally it is a fluorescent light bulb.
1: Yeah, and then the wheels on the bottom look like any one of those shop vacs or whatever. You got the four wheels kind of coming out. So it does look very kind of like futuristic. And so basically this thing, you just roll into a room, you press play and then run out. And then in seven minutes, it cleans the room.
0: Exactly. And it's more efficient and effective than sort of manual disinfection, which is what people have typically been doing, where essentially you spray some bleach or hydrogen peroxide on a surface and you wipe it off. Humans are imperfect. And there are a ton of studies and a ton of precedent in hospitals that show that even their specially trained environmental services teams miss over 50% of all of the surfaces in a hospital room when they turn over patient rooms. So the best in breed hospitals, the ones that control infections the best, use UVC light as sort of that added layer of protection. And that's what we're doing at R0 is really democratizing access to that hospital grade technology so that everybody can have it during this terrible time and then beyond and hopefully establish this new standard for disinfection and the environmental health and safety of the spaces that we spend so much time in.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I'm looking at it, I think I've seen this maybe once before, or maybe something similar like it just off. I don't know. Maybe it was a news story like years ago or something like that, where you could use ultraviolet to clean warehouses or something. I never even thought about that. And now I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, wow, well, I guess your business must be booming right now if it can help clean and disinfect stuff. Right?
0: It is. The growth we've been able to achieve is pretty remarkable. We actually incorporated the company on April 7th of 2020. So right at the start of the pandemic, jumped to action very quickly. We brought the product to market in five months. So that's conceive of the idea, design, develop, manufacture the product. Shipped our first product on September 22nd. And through the end of the year, we sold almost $6 million worth of product. So We're growing every month, but our mission right now is to help as many people as humanly possible during this pandemic. And then post-pandemic, it's all about reducing sick days, helping people feel safe in the spaces that they typically frequent, and hopefully reinstilling that trust between the end consumer and our customers to help accelerate their economic recovery.
1: So you said you developed this in five months, this product?
0: Yeah. It's kind of crazy to look back on it and think about what we did, but there's nothing better to do during a pandemic when you can't travel or go see friends anyway. In my opinion, there's no better way to spend my time than to be productive and kind of help society get back to some semblance of normal with a proper sense of safety. So it's been a lot of hard work, but we also had an incredible team working on it as well. But I think the most important part about all of that is everybody was so motivated by the mission, which really makes those 120-hour weeks back-to-back, it makes them more bearable, I would say, and it keeps you getting up in the morning. So we're really proud of the speed to market with the product, and we're even more proud of the efficacy. When we were developing this thing, it was super important for us that it works, and it's backed by science. And our benchmark was the $125,000 machines that are sold into hospitals right now. We wanted to perform as well or better than them, and we did. So despite moving fast, we produced a truly iconic Sort of category defining product that we're really proud of how well it works too. So,
1: did you develop this right when the pandemic
0: started? Yeah. Was it because of the pandemic or you already had the idea of doing it? Funny you say that. So, preface this by saying if I knew everything I knew two years ago about this industry, I would absolutely still start this business. But the genesis for the business was actually the pandemic itself. So, I actually got together with my two co founders, Eli Harris and Ben Boyer. I'd known them for a number of years. In fact, Ben was a venture capitalist for the last 20 years. We founded a venture capital firm that he was running, and he was on one of my boards, my previous companies. And so I got to develop a working relationship with them, and he was super engaged, someone I always looked up to and respected and wanted to try to figure out a way to work together. But I always thought it would be in the capacity of him investing in something that I did and not actually operating a business with me. And, And then Eli was, he came to me at one of my previous businesses as well. Eli was working at DJI, the consumer drone company at the time, and he was running their international business function. And my previous company did on-demand technical services and on-demand like phone repair, Um, we were called iCracked. And Eli came to us and proposed a drone repair program for the company. The program never materialized, but Eli was one of those guys that you keep in your back pocket. You always try to figure out how to work together in the future and sort of fast forward to the pandemic. And actually, Ben called me up with this idea, but all three of us were watching the loss of human lives, the human suffering that was happening at the beginning of the pandemic and economic destruction as well. Ben was seeing a number of his portfolio companies that are super healthy, profitable, growing go to zero overnight for no fault of their own. And I'm watching my favorite mom and pop restaurants in my neighborhood close forever. People losing everything that they've put their lives into. So all three of us were doing something different at the beginning of the pandemic, and we got together and we really felt compelled to help. And for me personally, it was one of those things where you look yourself in the mirror and you say, like, if we come out the other end of this thing and I didn't do something to help, I don't know how good I'd feel about myself. So it was crazy. It came together quickly, but the stars kind of aligned. All three of us got together and hit the ground running
1: email octopus it's a simple yet powerful email marketing tool that helps entrepreneurs and small business owners build their audience and grow their business it comes with a landing page builder and customizable signup forms for collecting valuable contact info from your customers you can also set up autoresponders for greeting new subscribers and onboarding new customers plus delivering an email course or maybe just nurturing leads with great content plus their segmentation for when you're ready to start introducing personalization and delivering the perfect message to the right person at the right time, just like I am right now. See, Email Octopus also integrates with thousands of other apps that are essential to entrepreneurs and small business owners, from payment platforms like Stripe and PayPal to e-commerce sites like Shopify and WooCommerce and more advanced marketing automation platforms like ClickFunnels. Best of all, Email Octopus is free for your first 2,500 subscribers. And that's great if you're just starting to build an audience. After that, prices start from just 20 bucks a month. You know what I like most about Email Octopus? Is that it has that straightforward pricing that scales with your business. And guess what? Right now, Email Octopus is offering our listeners 50% off their first month. Visit emailoctopus.com forward slash millionaire or quote code Millionaire 50 at time of sign up. Again, for 50% off your first month of email marketing, visit emailoctopus.com forward slash millionaire or quote code millionaire 50 at sign up. I'm here with Jonathan Cogley. How are you doing, Jonathan?
2: Hi, Austin. Doing great. Thanks.
1: Cool. Uh, Jonathan actually interviewed him on episode 85, and he actually helped a lot of our business founders on Group Call 14. So if you're a Patreon member, you can check that out. So your company is Logic Boost Labs. Can you tell us a little bit more
2: about it? Sure. So we're a startup accelerator. We're based in San Diego, and we work with startups that are early revenue or pre-revenue. So you've got a great business idea. Maybe you've validated the market. You've got one or two customers or maybe a few beta customers, and you're looking to grow your business. We're the accelerator that would help you. We have three startup partners already. One is in Israel, one is in Tennessee, and one is in LA. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months.
1: So if people wanted to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to reach you?
2: Definitely visit our website, so logicboostlabs.com millionaire. Sign up for a free mentoring session with me. We'll talk about your business and see if you're a good fit.
1: Okay, so it's free to sign up.
2: Yeah, we're looking for startups It doesn't cost anything. We're looking to do a free mentoring session with them, learn a little bit more about their business and see if it's a good fit for our team. So our team would then bring angel investment so we can write checks up to, say, $300,000. And we also include services. So we might be able to provide a VP of sales to help get your startup going. It could be, you know, customer success help. It could be technical help. We have a CTO on staff. And yeah, that's the approach. We basically accelerate your startup and give you a better chance of being successful. And our goal is to take startups from effectively zero dollars to one million ARR. And where do they
1: need to go to one more time, Jonathan?
2: Logicboostlabs.com slash millionaire. And we're looking to add two new startups within the next four months.
1: So it was you three guys coming together kind of when the pandemic started. And then you just said, hey, let's put together this company. Did you think right then we can do use ultraviolet rays, I guess, to make a product and make it easy and fast and clean
0: somewhere? <laughs> yeah, I think it's funny you ask. Like, when we came together, we weren't really sure what we were going to do. We just wanted to help conceptually. But what ended up happening was the original idea for the company was I alluded to iCracked, one of my previous companies where we had an on-demand workforce of a number of thousands of technicians across the United States, Canada, and Europe. And when you broke your phone, for example, you'd press a button, we'd send one of them out to you and they'd fix your phone wherever you're at. And so the original idea for the company was actually a service-based company like that. So the I cracked for disinfection. And so the idea was, hey, we're going to go out, we're going to send our workforce of specially trained technicians out to businesses and have them do some sort of differentiated disinfection service so above and beyond what a normal janitorial or housekeeping staff would be able to perform. And to do that, conceptually, we thought that we needed to equip them with differentiated technology. And so we started looking at the scope of options. What's out there? What can we use that isn't in these spaces right now that does a really good job? And along the way, we actually serendipitously got connected to our now chief scientist, Dr. Richard Wade, who has taught it. Oxford and Harvard. He was the head of OSHA for over a decade. This guy literally wrote the book on environmental health and safety and is sort of a global leader in the industry. But we stumbled into him. Again, goes back to iCracked, actually. One of our iTechs, one of our technicians, his dad is Dr. Wade. And so I was talking to one of our co-founders from iCracked and telling him about what we're doing with R0. And he said, hey, do you remember Matt Wade? I think his dad does something like this. You should call him up. So got connected with Dr. Wade. He sent over his 13-page resume. I kid you not, 13 pages of accolades and experience and got on the phone with him and, and he was perfect fit. And he's the man. We actually affectionately call him the Michael Jordan of infection prevention just because he's so experienced. But long story short, we brought him on board and he was kind of our Sherpa, so to speak. So he helped us understand what technologies are out there, what some of the best organizations in the world at controlling infections are doing and and he pointed us at hospitals. And so we started studying what hospitals do to keep their patients safe and to keep their doctors and administrators safe as well. So if you think about a hospital, as long as hospitals have existed, they've been a communal gathering place for the sick. So you have a number of different communicable diseases coming in that work there treating they have to keep the patients safe from each other and the doctors and the administrators as mentioned. But fundamentally, what hospitals do is three things. First thing they do is they deal with the hands. So they scrub in and scrub out before and after surgery. They practice good hand hygiene, use lots of hand sanitizer and wash their hands before and after they touch a patient, wear gloves, whatnot. So deal with the hands. Number two is they use special chemicals and they do what's called manual disinfection, which you and I would know as just you know spraying stuff on the surface and wiping it off. But then the best-in-breed hospitals, and this is where we discovered UVC, actually. So the best-in-breed hospitals, the ones that have the lowest incidences of hospital-acquired infections are ones that use UVC light. And so that's where we really discovered this technology. But the big challenge with it, and this goes back to the idea of the service-based business, but we found this light and it works against everything. In fact, there are no known UVC resistant microorganisms on the planet. And over a hundred years of scientific research proving the germicidal efficacy of this technology, and our minds were blown. Why is this not used in commercial spaces? Why don't restaurants and hotels and schools use this as part of the normal cleaning and disinfection protocols? And what we found was everything sold into hospitals is. 60 to $125,000. So very cost prohibitive. And at that point, we actually thought our idea was dead in the water because we were thinking, how are we going to equip thousands of technicians with $100,000 machines? And the short answers were not. So what ended up happening was I'm an engineer by training. I love to take things apart, figure out how they work. That's how my brain works. And so you
1: stole one from a hospital and kind of. (laughs) (laughs) See, I knew it.
0: So I was looking at these things. I was like, they're light bulbs on wheels with timers. Like, how does this cost $125,000? There's no way. So I dove deep and tried to understand what you need to do to actually make one of these. And I actually found some open source plans from a biology lab at MIT shout out to that lab if anybody there is listening. So thank you for spurring this idea. But they published their plans and they published the bomb. So they had every single component that goes into it. They had links to buy it, the price of the components, and they even open source the software to control it. And that's not a commercializable product. For example, it had this like ugly wood sort of center post and whatnot. But what it did was it gave me the idea of what components go into these things. And it made me realize that we can actually build these things. So at that point in time, I called Ben back up and I said, Ben, you're going to think I'm crazy but we're building lights. (laughs) He said, you're crazy, but I'm in. So that's kind of how we got to the point where we chose UVC as our first product. But where we're going is super exciting too. And we'll build products that use other technologies and tackle different vectors of transmission for diseases and sort of outfit our customer spaces holistically with our technologies.
1: I guess it wasn't even a full year, but what ended up being your revenue in 2020?
0: Yeah. So we've booked about $5.4 million in sales since September 22nd when we shipped our first product. So pretty remarkable progress so far. We have big aspirations for Q1 and beyond. And it just feels good to be able to help that many people. We're in schools, working a lot with schools. We're working a lot with correctional facilities, senior care facilities. We're working a lot with professional sports teams, restaurants, hotels. You name it it's basically any space where we're not allowed to go right now really needs this and human health and safety is the foundation of maslow's hierarchy of needs so the blessing and the curse of this business is it's perfectly horizontal so there are a ton of different customers or potential customers, but you know it makes it really difficult to focus and prioritize who we can help. But our philosophy during this pandemic is to help the most vulnerable. And that's one of the reasons we've been prioritizing schools, for example. When we shipped our first products, they went to schools because schools had an urgent need with reopening. And a lot of the teachers and the students didn't have a choice whether to go back to school or not. So we wanted to reach out and help them. But long-term, we're going to be orienting towards the sort of commercial office space kind of setting and hospitals and hotels and restaurants and everything in between.
1: How about nursing homes?
0: Yeah, nursing homes are huge too. So we're working a lot with nursing homes. And again, one of the most vulnerable populations in the world. In fact, about 42% of all coronavirus related deaths happened to somebody that lives in a nursing home. So it's a very at-risk population and they're kind of trapped. They don't have anywhere to go. So the challenge is, is huge and the risk is really high. So we love working with nursing homes and we think this has huge implications after the pandemic as well in nursing homes.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Even with Corona, once it eventually goes away, hopefully, I mean, no matter what disease or bacteria infections, the older you are, the more likely you're going to die. You know, I guess contract some of that.
0: Yeah. And like pneumonia is a huge problem in nursing homes. And so is norovirus, which is the stomach flu, essentially, but pathogens like that can literally kill people in, in nursing homes because the older you get, the weaker your immune system gets, the more vulnerable you get. So the ability to sort of extend somebody's life by virtue of helping them stay safe and not get infected by these different pathogens that are endemic to the spaces that they live, work and play in is something that's incredibly motivating to us and something we're excited to be able to do after we fight the coronavirus.
1: So I guess about in three months, you said you did almost like six million in sales? Yeah. So it took about six months to fully develop this product and get it launched, and then it's kind of insane, right? (laughs) Develop it in six months, and then three months later, you're like, okay, in three months, we did about six million in sales.
0: Yeah, man, it was fun. It's been a whirlwind, and most days, I don't know what day it is anymore, kind of all blurs together, but we're moving incredibly fast. And to be honest, we really haven't had a chance to pick our heads up and kind of look back and understand how special it is that we were able to accomplish what we did. Really been heads down and and intend to stay that way. But yeah, it's been really fast, but really fun. And there's been no shortage of challenges along the way.
1: I could imagine maybe you're probably going to be on this path for next year or two, just looking at it. It's like, because it, now let's say you made this awesome product, which it sounds like everyone wants. Now you probably have people like all over you want it. Like even when I said nursing homes or you're like, I want to do schools or whatever. And you're like, you probably have so many people who want it. You're trying as hard as you can to make as many as possible. Yeah. You did it to be a good guy, right? To try to help people. And then I could see some people getting backlash of, I want it now. We need it.
0: Oh, yeah. So, I mean, we have more demand than we know what to do with, obviously, like you said. But my biggest fear and the thing that keeps me up at night is if we have a customer that places an order, a school, for example, that places an order and we can't ship for a couple of weeks because we're trying to keep up with demand with inventory and and supply chain constraints and whatnot. My biggest fear is in those three weeks between when they place the order and they get the product that somebody gets sick and God forbid, worse. So it definitely keeps us up at night and it's definitely motivating, but yeah, it's been hard to keep up with demand and and we've had to do some really unnatural things. We paid a lot of expedite fees and we've had to form some strategic relationships because if you can imagine that the UV bulbs are in extremely high demand and that industry is booming right now. So when we originally went to go place our initial order, the lead times were like 16 to 24 weeks and that just doesn't work for us. So we had to form some strategic relationships like the one we did with our bulb supplier in order to get them to drip feed us enough to keep us moving on the development process and then now to keep up with demand. So it's been the biggest supply chain challenge I've ever dealt with, certainly. And we've just had to get really good about setting expectations with customers about timing and when we can deliver and when we can't but there's been bumps and bruises but the team we're putting together is a team that we're super proud to put in front of customers and they do a really good job just setting expectations it's it's all about setting expectations and i think you know our customers are very receptive to timelines and as long as we are upfront with them and kind of help them understand what's going to happen
1: how big is your team right now
0: yeah. So we're 36 employees as of today and still growing. I sent a couple offer letters yesterday. so and I sent mine in. So. <laughs> Austin, we'd love to bring you on as our chief podcast officer. And uh, no, really though, I think that the people we're bringing on board are world-class truly. And I have to pinch myself every day, I'm 32 years old. And we have people with more experience than I have years in my life Working with us on this mission and people that are at huge companies and have amazing pedigrees, starting with my co-founder, Ben, 20 year VC managed a $1.5 billion fund, left that to come operate this business with me. So it's pretty humbling and it's amazing to see what you can do when you have a mission and a team that's rallied around it and oriented towards that mission. And the sacrifices people will make are pretty incredible. So we're super lucky to have the people that we do. And we've been able to keep the quality bar extremely high, which is really hard to do too.
1: It really did just start off with three guys. You said you're two co-founders and you? Yeah. Or maybe another doctor, like maybe five total?
0: Yeah, Dr. Wade, we consider Dr. Wade like a sort of a fourth co-founder. He was our first quote-unquote employee. He's on the cap table right when we incorporated the company. So, But he's a a minority shareholder, but he's definitely part of the founding team. And one other person that's part of the founding team that was incredibly helpful to us standing this thing up, his name's Michael Chu. And Ben, my co-founder, Michael was his associate at Tanaya, the venture capital fund, and Ben kept talking this guy up. And he's like, "Man, Michael, he's a Swiss Army knife. He's a badass. Like this guy's like SEAL teams. He can do anything." So we're like, "Yeah, that sounds great, Ben. Let's. What's he gonna help with?" He was actually employed, and he while we started the company, and he actually created our first fundraising deck. Sat down with him for like 30 minutes or an hour and kind of just talked at him. He took notes, didn't really say much. Then he left. And I was thinking to myself, like, there's no way this guy has enough information to go put together a pitch deck. Sure enough, like two days later, this guy turns around the most amazing, incredible pitch deck. And I don't know how he did it, but it was perfect. And we went out and raised with it. And we're seeking a million dollars when we of seed funding when we started. But within three days, we were oversubscribed. So we had people throwing money at us. And we ended up raising one7 In that round, but point being, Michael's deck worked, and he was working kind of nights and weekends with us at the beginning while working his other job as well. I consider him part of the founding team as well, although we didn't hire him officially until a couple months after we started. Did you get the cost underneath a hundred thousand? I mean, are at least selling it for? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So (laughs) how much does one cost? (laughs) I forgot that important detail. We did accomplish the goal of sort of democratizing (laughs) access to this this technology. So what we ended up doing was, and actually, Austin, let me back up and explain why the hospital units are so expensive. This is a huge learning to us, and we think a huge disservice to the industry and consumers. But essentially, it comes back to when the market for UVC products in hospitals really started to take off was in 2008 when Obamacare went into place. And essentially, what Obamacare did was with the expanded coverage, they had to pay for it somehow. So they raised taxes, of course, but then they wanted to lower cost. And what they did was they looked at government spending. And one of the places where there was a lot of money being spent was Medicare and Medicaid were reimbursing hospitals for hospital-acquired infections. And so a hospital-acquired infection is where you go into a hospital for, say, a broken arm and you come out with a staph infection. And hospital-acquired infections, about one in 25 hospital visits results in a hospital-acquired infection. It's about the sixth leading cause of death in the United States, which is pretty crazy to us. And they cost anywhere between ten dollars and $30,000 a piece to remediate for a hospital. And up until 2008, Medicare and Medicaid were paying for that. And that changed. And Medicare and Medicaid basically said, look, hospitals, like this infection happened on your watch because of your infection prevention practices. And so you are now financially liable for these HAIs. And so that put the impetus on the hospitals to invest in creating these safer spaces and doing a better job with infection prevention. And and that's when the UVC market really took off. And so what these companies do is they walk in with their $100,000 device and they say to the hospitals, hey, use this for six months and see what your HAI rate is. And then compare that to the previous six months or, or some time period, your baseline. And if you prevent four or five HAIs then this device pays for itself because they cost you know 10 to 30,000 dollars a piece for the hospital inevitably it works because the technology's tried and true it's been around forever we know it works and those hospitals feel good about it because they think it's a cost savings mechanism and so that's worked but it's really sort of a value extraction model how much money can we extract from this customer but it's not based on sort of how much it costs to make the thing and and that's really what we're pricing it at is how much does it cost to make what's a fair price And what's going to democratize access to this thing and, and make it available to more organizations of really any shape and size. And so really roundabout way of getting to the pricing. But what we've done is we've put it on a hardware as a service model. So it's basically a subscription model, a lease you can think of it as. And the lease is about $17 a day. So that's cheap enough for most organizations to afford, even those that are economically distressed right now. And that was really important for us to really make this thing accessible financially to anyone who wants or needs it.
1: So a little over 6,000, I did that in my head.
0: Yeah, so the lease would be $17 a day. So it's about 514 a month, I think. I did that in my head too, so don't quote me on that. But No, I'm joking, I didn't (laughs) do mine in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 17
1: times 365 at Google, I just went to that. They said 6205 for a year.
0: Yeah, so that would be for like, a. we typically do like three-year leases and then our customers can renew too. So,
1: I mean, that's way lower than what it was, right? I mean, it seems like you hit your goal of what you're trying to do.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, we'll build products in the future that are right-sized for the different types of environments we're in. When we engineered this product, we wanted to make sure that it works. And so we kind of over-engineered it. If we were going to miss on efficacy, we wanted to miss high make it more powerful than it needed to be. So we did that, we ended up doing that, but our device puts out the same amount of light or more than those 60 to $125,000 devices. And we've actually proved that. We sent our devices to a third party independent lab in Bozeman, Montana of all places. And we tested it against live microorganisms. So we tested it against human coronavirus. We tested it against feline calicivirus, which is the norovirus family stomach flu, you can think of. We tested against MRSA, which is staph. And then we also tested against E. coli. So these different pathogens that exist in our customer spaces. For all four of those challenge species, we achieved greater than a four log reduction. So greater than 99.99% reduction in those microorganisms in a single seven minute cycle. And that's truly the best price performance on the market. That's not lip service. That's something we're really proud of. And it's uh, unequivocally true.
1: How much did it cost you all to put it together?
0: One of the things about moving fast is you don't have great financial infrastructure and accounting infrastructure. So it actually took us a while to kind of look back and see like, okay, how much it's actually cost? But it cost us, and we're still working on it. We're still tweaking some things.
1: I agree, because you're still new, and, and you're debating on how many you put your hours into and making new ones and all that.
0: Not counting hours, over a million dollars to bring it to market. And we could have done it for much less, but it was important to move quickly. So I mentioned earlier, we paid a lot of expedite fees, and and we took a lot of risk. We made risk buys. We used short-run manufacturing processes. We did a lot of things that were more expensive than you would typically do. And so future products, hopefully, we don't have the same urgency necessitated by a global pandemic but you can do it for less money but moved quickly at the expense of our cost to bring it to market
1: it makes sense to do it on the lease too because now again it depends on the industry it's just crazy how corona can switch industries one that boom and one that destroys your industry but you know putting it on a lease where it seems like most businesses overall right if averaged average it out have gone down in revenue kind of significantly right
0: Oh, yeah. It's crazy to see how these different businesses and organizations are adapting. It's actually, it's very heartening to see the creativity that's happening. But really, we came out to market. And the interesting thing that we learned from a business perspective is we wanted to make this accessible, which is why we put it on the lease. We accomplished that. But what was interesting is, especially the larger organizations, it becomes an accounting question for them. Do they want it to hit their books as OPEX or CAPEX? And a lot of them have large capital budgets, and those capital budgets, they want to deploy them on a device like ours. And so we've actually offered a purchase option to some of our customers as well. We are adaptable in that way. But yeah, the lease is, from a business perspective, definitely better for us as well. So it's kind of a win-win where we get this predictable cash flow. We can forecast the business and run the business more predictably and have a little bit more control. And then it just so happens that subscription businesses are valued differently. They're more valuable when you look to go exit as well. So we have that as an added benefit. But the primary motivation was to really make this, this accessible financially. But I think we've accomplished that.
1: How much is it if I want to buy it straight up for my home office?
0: Yeah, it's about $18,500 depending on the size of the order, the type of the organization. It really depends. We'll discount more for bigger orders. But yeah, it's a fraction of the cost of the hospital, the one sold in the hospitals currently.
1: Right, and you're saying it performs well. Like, yeah, I wouldn't be scared about even saying that price, just because it's just like you did what you wanted, right? You're saying it's between sixty and a hundred thousand before you literally made it at least half, and you say it works better, proven by
0: whatever scientific studies you're doing. I mean, our product is objectively better than pretty much everything on the market
1: because all the other stuff's probably super old too.
0: It's old, and and so here's the big observation about this company and what gets me really excited about R Zero and what we can do for the future, but. When we were starting this, we were starting to think about who our competitors are, and we looked at these UV. companies that sell into hospitals, and we decided that that was too short-sighted to consider them our competitors. And, and we took a step back and we looked at the bigger players in the space that are doing infection prevention with things other than UV too. So think about the EcoLabs of the world and Cloroxis of the world and S. C. Johnson's so massive companies over a hundred years old, some of them phenomenal brands, phenomenal companies. They're profitable. They do great work. Nothing wrong with those companies. They're great companies, objectively. But if you look at what they do, fundamentally, they are commodity chemical manufacturers. And so they don't have technology and innovation in their DNA. And we do. So we wanted to look at this space and say, hey, how should infection prevention be done in 2021 and beyond? And to us, that looks like a lot more IoT-connected hardware, a lot more data and data science to derive actionable insights from the data that we're collecting. And then a lot more software to help feed that data and those insights back to our customers, to help them manage workflows, automate things, and influence behavior in a positive way in their space as well. So that's really what we're bringing to the market. And that's really our approach here is we want to modernize this industry and inject technology and innovation in a time where it's never been more urgent and the need has never been more apparent. So have those other
1: companies that used to, or still, I guess, make those kind of ultraviolet light things that they put in the hospitals, have they tried infiltrating your company and stealing your technology?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, bring it on.
1: I could see that because you are a disruptor, right? Are you the first guy to kind of do this or no? Are there some similar companies now?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of companies like it's crazy to me that no one did this before the pandemic. We didn't even know what UVC was a year ago at this time. It's crazy. And we kept waiting for the shoe to drop as we were starting this company. We kept thinking we're missing something. We're like, there's got to be something that we're missing. And the longer we went on and the deeper we dove and the more we learned, the more conviction we had about this and that we're not missing anything. And now I know we're not, but there are companies that are doing this. I think it's been a lot of, I would categorize it as a lot of companies that are taking their sort of pre-pandemic business and leaning in. So companies that made UV devices before kind of leaning in and just doubling down on their marketing and sales efforts, I guess companies that made things that are sort of tangential to coronavirus, kind of leaning in and and positioning themselves a little bit differently. But to my knowledge, there isn't a company that's taking sort of this holistic approach like we're planning to do. But people will certainly try to steal our technology. That would be flattering it means we probably did a few things, right? But we welcome the challenge. We actually, the way I see it is it's not a zero-sum game. I think that the space needs more. It needs better efficacy, more efficiency. We need to be able to protect our people. And if we can establish a new standard for disinfection and infection prevention, it benefits all of us as humans. So bring it on. We'll have a friendly challenge. But the crazy thing, Austin, and what I mean by this new standard, this need for this new standard, is if you look at the data from before the coronavirus, 40 million Americans get the seasonal flu every year and somehow we've just accepted that's normal. And the average American gets the common cold 3 times a year. Like that's crazy to me. And even with the flu we have a vaccine and so I think we can do better. I know we can do better. And in fact there's some really exciting data that's coming out of the southern hemisphere right now that's showing that the basic infection prevention measures that we're taking for the coronavirus things like wearing masks, social distancing, the enhanced cleaning and disinfection protocols, those are enough to effectively eradicate the flu. If you look at South Africa, for example, I read this study in South Africa that showed that typically South Africa reports nearly a million cases of the flu every year. This year, they reported one, one case of the flu, showing that the tools and the technology exist, the knowledge exists. We just have not applied it in the most effective way. We haven't put the pieces together in the most effective way. And, and that's what we exist to do. And if you think about the implications of that, the goal for our company long-term is to reduce sick days. If you think about the cost of sick days, it's hard to quantify, but I've seen estimates as high as $600 billion in economic drain on the US economy, and that's the direct and indirect related healthcare costs. It's the lost productivity and the opportunity costs from those. And it's staggering. And most businesses spend the vast majority of their cash on humans and on people. And to us, we see this as sort of a human optimization problem. How can we keep our humans safer, healthier, more productive beyond the coronavirus?
1: I'm looking at it too. We never even really said, I mean, I just wondered when you roll it into a room or a restaurant, you press the play button, do you have to run out? Can you not be in there while you're doing the ultraviolet things running for seven minutes?
0: Yeah, sorry, that's an important point. Yeah, ultraviolet light, specifically UVC, is harmful to human skin and eyes. So if you're exposed to it for a prolonged period of time, it'll give you sort of a skin irritation or a rash, kind of like a sunburn and it'll hurt your eyes as well. I've been exposed. I guess I call it part of the product development process is accidentally getting exposed.
1: Well, you were one of the experimenters, right? They put you in the (laughs) room to see what would happen. We don't care about Grant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's really my own fault because like testing the things that I'm building, kind of mad scientist style, and I get exposed and I have no one to blame but myself. But that's an important point. So, a couple things about the safety. So safety is really important. Our stance is that nobody should be exposed to UVC, although OSHA does have permissible exposure limits. But we've designed the system in a way that prevents exposure completely. So we actually have four PIR sensors around the top of the device. They have 360 degree visibility and long range. So the idea is if a cycle is running and somebody walks into the room, those will detect that person walking in and it'll automatically shut the device off. So we bake that safety feature into the device. The other thing is when you start the device, you actually have a 30 second countdown to run out of the room or you can walk out of the room, but
1: uh, (laughs) it makes it cooler. (laughs) You're like, you got to run out of there.
0: Exactly. Yeah. That's actually an interesting product feature we should test is like dropping it to like five seconds.
1: Get people more fit, right? Get them running instead of just walking.
0: Exactly. No, but there's a 30-second countdown to allow time to leave the room and if that countdown finishes and our sensors still detect somebody in the room, the cycle won't start. So, really safe. The other thing that we do is we actually do white glove delivery and handheld onboarding with our customers. So, what we do is we deliver the unit, we uncrate it, we plug it in, make sure it works, and then we take all the crate and the all the debris away and then we'll actually walk your space with you and help you understand where to put it, how long to run it for, how to prepare the room, teach you about the safety aspects of it, and we'll actually train your whole team. And so it's important to us that the end users feel comfortable and compelled to interact with our device, and they should be proud of their contribution to creating a safer space. So we designed it for that end user, and it's important for us to make them proficient, get them comfortable and confident, and make sure that they know how to use it safely and effectively. So that's another safety mechanism. There's a bunch of other stuff, like we ship it with safety glasses, we ship it with bilingual warning signs, all kinds of stuff. So you're expediting shipping
1: costs is the airplane tickets that you pay for the people to go out there. That's the expensive part?
0: That's expensive, yeah. And these things are big. They're six and a half feet tall. So look at your typical doorway and they are like a couple centimeters short of that doorway. They're pretty tall. But if you look at the crate, it looks like a crate that's about the size of something you'd ship a refrigerator in. So it's very large. You can't really put it on a plane. Well, at least I'm sure you can, but we haven't yet, but very large and a little bit difficult to move around. And if you're shipping a lot of them, you need a big truck.
1: So that's why I was joking around about the expedited shipping and people having plane tickets. Because I mean, that is cool that you're saying, yeah, because you need people at least, especially your first users. I mean, I imagine hopefully five years from now, you don't have to do that. You'll probably have videos or whatever, but you want to make sure at least the first people, especially if they're paying, that they're doing it right. Like you said, You have to make sure they're doing above and beyond rather than too little. And then viruses still be within the area that is disinfecting.
0: Exactly. And that's one of the interesting things. So speaking from a product development process, like that's where my heart is. That's where my sort of career has been is product development and interacting with customers is critically important, especially in the early stages. And we were lucky enough to have some people that trusted us enough to bring our prototype devices on site. So we were able to go on site with a couple of different hotels a couple different restaurants, and really learn what people do when they interact with this thing. And that was invaluable during the product development process and getting the feedback. And we're continuing that learning, like you said, by going on site with our customers and really handholding this process. And it's amazing what you can learn from them, not just the characteristics of their space, but you learn about the challenges that they're going through more broadly through the coronavirus. And really, our goal is to build a long-lasting partnership with all of our customers. And so although it's really expensive for us, that's why we raised money to be able to do stuff like this. And it goes a really long way in establishing that trust and that relationship with the customers. Something goes wrong. They're more fault tolerant. They're more, they're like, Hey, I know those guys, like they're good people, positive intent here and we'll work through this together kind of thing. And then they also give us great product ideas too. Every visit and every interaction we have with the customers, we're always asking like, what problems do you need to solve right now that you don't have a solution for? Or how are you doing disinfection? How's that going? Are you using extra labor during the coronavirus? Are you using extra chemicals? How are you using those chemicals? Are they harmful to your employees? Are they making people's throat and eyes and nose burn? And can we help in other ways outside of our current product? So- always learning about how to adapt the product, how to build new products that add value to the customers. And that FaceTime with them is so, so important and critical and totally worth the plane ticket.
1: what did you think about that group call the other day? Yeah, it was good. You know, even if there's less people on there, it actually benefits you more personally, you know?
0: Yeah, I totally agree. You know, you're getting advice from multiple people. You know, a lot of people pay a lot of money to have coaches and for 24 bucks a month and be able to get all the other podcasts and that. I was like, it's... Kind of a no-brainer.
1: Usually I try to do like the history or kind of do a chronological like timeline to how you got here. Would you be cool if we just kind of stick with R0 this whole time? And then later on, maybe a year or two down the line, I figure we could do an update and you could tell your story then. And Because I think it's just so valuable about you put this product together less than a year ago and just going through all these hiccups. is like, and your product seems pretty hard to manufacture comparatively to, you know, some other people. So it's like fresh from your mind. So it's cool if we just stick with R0 because I still have a lot more questions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you, were you the guy who actually kind of did the product design and put this all together, or did you have a team? Like, How did you do it? Because you were just alluding to that.
0: Yeah. So the product would look and feel a lot differently if it was just me <laughs> for, for the worse, but I was just the idea guy, so to speak, and the tinker kind of moving it along. We had a couple of partners that were incredibly valuable to have as partners. So A couple of different teams of people that we brought on. The team that did the industrial design and created the aesthetic for the product, and and really understand, really helped us understand the usability and how people are going to interact with it. That team actually designed all of the Nest products, the Roku products, the Eero Wi-Fi products. So they have a track record of building these sort of designing these iconic products that are sort of category defining. And it's we overinvested in the resources to help us get this thing to market because we wanted speed and certainty and that gamble paid off. The other thing we did that we overinvested in that was really helpful is we manufacture our device here in San Jose, California. As you can imagine, not the cheapest place in the world to manufacture anything, really.
1: That's literally one of the questions I was going to get to next. I'm like, is this made in the USA? And yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. So the reason we chose to manufacture it in San Jose, a couple of reasons. But first, part of the impetus of starting this business was to help Reopen America, help accelerate the economic recovery coming out of this and our hearts broke for all the people who lost their jobs and the people who lost their businesses and their livelihoods and. Making it here stateside is just one small way that we can create jobs in, in our backyard and really help the American economy in a very small way. So that was one of the motivators. But the other ones are speed and certainty I mentioned earlier, but basically the fact that this thing was in the manufacturers in our backyard means, you know, I can go down there and physically be on the floor and help troubleshoot things and work through issues with the team. And so you know, that really reduces a lot of cycles. The other thing is that the contract manufacturer that we use is world class. And again, adds, adds to the cost certainly, but they're world class and they really know what they're doing. So we didn't want to work with somebody who may be learning on the job, so to speak, and may cause some delays. So it was really important for us to do it stateside and do it here in our backyard.
1: And it's a new product, like you said, especially in the beginning, if you're going to China, it costs way more to- Ship it over here. Yeah, exactly. But who knows if China even wants to make this, right? <laughs> you <know>? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like the name, so it's called ARC. I think it's cool to have a good name for it too. Like you know how Amazon has Echo or whatever. I think putting a good product name on there that the arc works pretty well. Thank you. I imagine just giving them like friendly names. I mean, I think would make anyone want to use them. I, th- I think people miss out on that a lot.
0: The funny story about that: our first. Ever prototype was we took it to a restaurant. One of our investors owns a restaurant, three Michelin star restaurant here. So, you know, the stakes were pretty high. We wanted to impress our first customer. We built this product that looks nothing like the one you see on our website today. It was duct tape and bail wire. And we were basically just kind of testing the functionality and, and form and fit. But we named it Hope, and her full name was Hope This Works. And <laughs> did uh, they know that or no? <laughs> No, they didn't. (laughs) And they actually ended up naming theirs Roberta. So when they finally got the production unit, they named her Roberta. And so yeah, personifying it has been really interesting. And they consider it a part of the team. I think in a weird way, it makes people want to use it, interact with it a little bit more. But maybe in the 2021 roadmap, we can throw in like wigs or hats or like sunglasses or just accessories for our products to name. You can give them personality call him the donald
1: put some yellow <laughs> hair on there to floppy on the right right
0: paint it orange
1: yeah yeah make it yeah make it an orange model again because it doesn't look scary it kind of sounds scary if you just heard it you know what i'm saying but if it's all white and looks kind of friendly and i'm like okay like just giving it a friendly name and whatnot i think that like it looks pretty cool so i guess what's the biggest room is it like a whole restaurant would I have to roll it around two parts of the restaurant or like what's the biggest
0: size that it would take care of That's a great question. So it will actually treat theoretically kind of any size room, but the efficacy is a function of how far you are from the wall or the furthest surface that you're trying to disinfect. So we've tested at a number of different distances and room sizes and whatnot, but it really depends on the size of the room. So a thousand square foot room, we can disinfect in about seven minutes. Smaller rooms, like a typical hotel room, is generally three to five minutes. Bathrooms, typically three minutes for like a cafeteria, you might be able to run, depending on the size of it, you might be able to run a 15 to 20 minute cycle and be done, or you could do a couple of smaller, shorter cycles and move it around. So it really depends on your operations as a business and and how you want to integrate this. But you know, we recommend you don't go bigger than a 5,000 square foot room. That's 20 to 25 minute cycle. But if it's bigger than that, you just wheel it around and run multiple cycles.
1: So yeah, I could see how a hotel, like, Just even using that versus like you're saying, cleaning with Clorox and all that. My my wife hates plastic, right? And how much does this cut out on that, right? And spraying and all the contaminants, like you're saying. I mean, I I guess bleaching would work, but who wants to put a rolled bleach in a room and mop the floors with it? Like, no one.
0: (laughs) Yes. This is a really important point that we're really proud of, actually. And there's a lot to kind of unpack here. But one of the intentional ways that we chose or intentional reasons that we chose UVC for is it's chemical free so there are no harmful chemicals we can actually displace bleach hydrogen peroxide and those harmful chemicals that are typically used and so environmental footprint environmental impact is important to us as a company and we can and will displace a number of those harmful chemicals and there are huge implications on humans of using those chemicals and so you talk to some of our school customers and especially like K through 12 schools or preschools they have children that touch toys and put them in their mouths and things like that. And so they can't use chemicals in their classroom or they have musical instruments that you can't spray chemicals on. We actually shadowed a housekeeping staff as part of the product development process as we were learning. And one of the housekeepers was explaining to us that at the end of every shift, her throat and her nose burn because of the concentration of the bleach and the hydrogen peroxide that they use. And she's inhaling it all day. And she actually brings her own bleach from home that she dilutes herself because it hurts her throat and knows less. So with our technology, you can displace bleach and just use regular soap and water on the surfaces and then use our device and have the same or higher efficacy, but much less harm, not to mention the reduced cost from less chemical consumption. It really is crazy that nobody's done this before in commercial spaces, but you know, we're, it's one of the things we're really proud of and excited about
1: because I think it's a lot more people are becoming environmentally conscious. I would just even you know, add that as one extra point, like how much plastic y'all would cut down. I'm sure you can do the math in your head by the end of this podcast.
0: Austin, you've got a job offer in your inbox. You already denied it, my
1: we're friend. We're actually doing that right now.
0: <laughs> are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're actually doing that. We're in the process of measuring our environmental footprint. And it's something that we're going to track over time. And actually, this actually ties back to our lead investor from our Series A. And we were fortunate enough to have a number of options for who to go with, with our Series A funding. And we wanted to choose an investor or a group of investors that were aligned with our values. And we did that. So we chose a company called, a firm called DBL. It stands for double bottom line, and they have a very good values alignment with us. And they've been incredibly helpful already and an incredible world-class investing track record as well. So DBL, what that means is the first bottom line is financial success. So they exist for the same reason as other venture capital funds to invest in financially successful companies. But the second bottom line is social and environmental good. And so they are going to help us identify ways that we can give back to the communities that we serve and reduce our environmental footprint. And they've done this with a number of other companies in their portfolio. So it's really helpful to have their expertise and and they've lended some resources to help us get going on that. But the social piece is important too. So we're actually moving the company headquarters to Salt Lake City, Utah, and we found an office in an LMI. So that's a low to moderate income zone. And there are tax benefits and incentives to, to being in LMIs. But also the social benefit is, look, we're creating jobs in this area So that was important to us as well. But we are thrilled and privileged and and fortunate to have investors like DBL that not only have great track record and can be super helpful in growing the business and, and making this thing successful, but also can help us be better stewards of the communities that we serve and better stewards of the environment as well, which is important to us. So it's good to have them help us keep ourselves accountable.
1: Is it going to take like a year to figure out exactly the environmental study of like how much, I guess, plastic you save, or I don't know if you're looking at, it at a different aspect, but again, I could just imagine how much it seemed like a lot versus like you're saying, coming in and spraying. If you're cleaning a kindergartner's room, whatever they're using, you come in here with that. I imagine they're also going to still clean just to make things shinier sometimes, but it seems like they'd be less worried about spraying like the whole room because this thing actually cleans it better than if you're just trying to get rid of bacteria, right?
0: Exactly. So what's interesting is like I've learned more about cleaning and disinfection than I ever thought I'd know, but there's actually a difference between cleaning and disinfection. They actually like mean different things. So cleaning is where you're physically removing particulates and matter from a surface. So removing dirt, but you're not actually killing anything. Disinfection is when you're effectively killing whatever microorganisms are on that surface. And so if you look at the CDC's recommendations, they actually recommend you clean with uh, warm water and soap, clean the surfaces to remove any debris and then you disinfect afterwards. And that exposes the surfaces and exposes any harmful pathogens that might be on them. I personally have never cleaned that way in my life. I've just sprayed a disinfectant on a surface and kind of cleaned it off realistically, that's also going to clean the surfaces as well, but you don't have to use all those harmful chemicals. But the other really interesting thing and that we've observed in this industry is one of the other really prevalent technologies that has started to emerge during the coronavirus is this thing called electrostatic spraying. And electrostatic spraying is basically, it's a technology that was invented for applying pesticides. So if you've seen those, my dad has one of these, but one of those like backpacks, they look like a Ghostbuster backpack with the tank and it carries like a pesticide in it. And then there's like a handle, like a little gun with a nozzle at the end. So electrostatic sprayers will have this nozzle that has, it runs a voltage across it, and it basically aerosolizes the liquid chemicals that are in there. And so it aerosolizes bleach, aerosolizes hydrogen peroxide, whatever those solutions are. And aerosolizing them will help those particles linger in the air for a really long time. And so if you may think that you're only applying to surfaces, but in reality, you have a ton of particulates hanging in the air that the next person that walks in that room is going to breathe. And oftentimes you can smell it when you walk into your bathroom after you use bleach, which might be the next step. But you can smell the bleach and it's you can feel how harmful it is, sort of. But those chemicals linger in the air of classrooms or commercial office spaces or your home or whatever it may be. But they linger because the device used to apply them is specifically designed to do that. And so there aren't a ton of studies about the long-term health implications of inhaling aerosolized disinfectants. But we know intuitively that it's not good. We know that it can cause asthmatic reactions and other respiratory infections and illness. There's speculation that prolonged exposure can cause cancer. We just don't know. So it's our stance that better be safe than sorry. And UV is just light. So you can leave a sandwich on the table, run a cycle and come back into the room and eat the sandwich right afterwards and you'd be fine. What
1: I would visualize too, I mean, I'm not looking at a picture of it, but I think I've seen in Southeast Asia, I don't know what country, maybe it was Korea, South Korea or something like that. So when those guys put on those white jackets and have those sprayers, like you're saying that's when they're using that. Cause I don't think I've seen a lot of that in America, maybe in New York and some subway stations they are doing stuff like that. I have no clue, but you know, where I live, I don't see people doing that, but they're doing exactly what you're talking about right there.
0: Yeah. It's that or like old school spray bottles and spraying surfaces and wiping it off with rags.
1: So this kills 99.999% more of coronavirus, that or higher?
0: Yeah, that or more, depending on the length of time and whatnot. But yeah, four nines.
1: Yeah, that's what I wanted to point out. Because I've heard what a significant difference it is to say something cleans 99.9% of bacteria, right? Or something even does 99.99, right? And isn't there a significant difference? And you're saying yours goes 0.9999, like four nines?
0: So 99.99. So the two nines before the decimal count too, but it actually does more than that depending on the microorganism and whatnot. So there's actually two points here. One, our device is super high efficacy. We've tested it in a government sanctioned lab and and an independent third party has verified that. So we have the test results to back it up. and, And that was important because everything we do needs to be backed by science. The thing that was crazy to us as we dove in here is this space is pretty much completely unregulated. So people can say whatever they want about the efficacy of their devices. And we think that's a huge detriment to the consumer for a number of reasons. But effectively, if you look at the market, it's kind of bifurcated. You have these high-end devices that are sold in hospitals, and you have these low-end devices that you can buy on Amazon, like those wands. And sort of typical rule of thumb is, if it's battery-powered, it doesn't have enough power to really do anything. The efficacy just isn't there. But these companies can sell it. And if you look closely at the language, largely they say like UVC light disinfects 99.9% or whatever, but they don't say their product does. And so the challenge for the consumers, there are no uniform performance standards. So it's really hard to compare apples to apples. So if you took our device and you went out and looked at some of the competitive devices on the market, they may have tested completely differently, or maybe not at all. And so they might advertise the wattage of the bulbs, which is largely irrelevant. So it's really hard for a consumer to understand which devices are more powerful than others. And the detriment to the consumer there is they might buy something and get this false sense of security where they think that this device is disinfecting their house, for example, but it's really not doing anything because it's not high enough power. And there's no requirement for that company to actually prove that it works the way they say it does. And so you actually see this a lot with some of the sort of, maybe I would categorize them as opportunistic home or consumer products and the UV wands the the little smart like UV devices that are they look like one of those blue yeti microphone things they just don't do anything so we think that should change and we're actually working on establishing some relationships with government regulators and we want to kind of be the champions and help shape those regulations and we think it's in in the service of the consumer and in service of the industry really and i think that the fact that there haven't been regulations or uniform performance standards is one of the reasons why UV technology hasn't proliferated into commercial spaces like we're trying to do just because it's hard for people to understand what's going on and you can't really trust it. Can't really trust what some of these companies are saying. So we think that should change and we're going to help it change.
1: I guess I was just going to mention too. I mean, I don't know if you can talk to it or not, but I guess even if, say it was a bar so, and it said 99.9% effective versus bacteria versus 99.99. Isn't that significant? Like that extra nine?
0: Oh yeah. So realistically it's significant in the sense that it gives you an idea of like relative strength of that disinfectant. So four nines is an order of magnitude better than three nines. But realistically, the name of the game is risk reduction in these spaces. There is no silver bullet. And when you run our device at Room, for example, some surfaces might get to 99.99% disinfection. Some might get to 99.999%. Some might get to 99.9999 if they're, for example, closer to our device. Really, it's hard to tell without doing some expensive surface swabbing tests and lab tests and stuff like that. But our stance is basically, if you use this UV technology, you're achieving a monumental reduction in risk. And so the three nines versus four nines is largely irrelevant in practice. Point being, either one of those is good enough to keep people safe.
1: That makes sense. I think I just had randomly heard it on a podcast. And again, that's something that I never thought of before, but maybe maybe it was Neil deGrasse Tyson or something brought it up, but they were saying, and I'm like, i never looked at maybe some sips only said 99%. And he's like, if you have the 99.99% versus just the 99.0%, that's not something I would never have looked at before, but I just thought it was interesting. So I figured I'd bring it up.
0: Yeah. And the other crazy thing about chemicals, when you look at chemicals and the claims that they're making, when you understand what the regulations are around chemical disinfectants, what's interesting is what's implied when they say 99.9% disinfection for this bleach solution or whatever it is, what's implied is that every chemical that's registered with the EPA and with, with the CDC has a contact time. And that contact time can be anywhere from maybe 30 seconds to like 10 minutes. And the way it works is In order to achieve the stated or advertised disinfection levels, you have to leave the surface visibly wet for that entire contact time. And I don't know about you, but I have never sprayed a chemical on a surface and waited 30 seconds to 10 minutes, depending on the chemical, before wiping it off. So the way that people typically use these disinfectants is actually not achieving the same level of disinfection that they think it is that's claimed on the label.
1: And I mean, I don't even wash my hands after going to the bathroom, so. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a study that said recently that that it's like 60% of men don't. I try to now. I did once Corona came around. I'm like, I guess I should start washing my hands. But really, I mean, I'm really just at home all the time anyways right now. But yeah, it's just funny. Like I'll over time, I'm just like the super spreader podcast with Austin. (laughs) I I just play with my own podcast, Mike, guys, don't worry. But it's just interesting that more in the details of the science, it's like nutritional facts, maybe 20 years ago, right? I think it became much a bigger deal. Now they make it bigger and you have to, I guess, have certain standards. I mean, I can definitely see what you're talking about. It's like, okay, what does the... The bar soap. Maybe the bar soap says I have to keep that on there for one minute, right? Put it on there, wait for one minute and then wash my hands. Even if you wash your hands, I don't think anyone's waiting there for a minute with the soap on their hands.
0: Yeah. And you've seen like the, the hand washing suggestions like, hey, wash your hands for 30 seconds or like say the ABCs. That's to accomplish this contact time thing, concept that I was mentioning where that you have to let these chemicals be in contact with anything that's harmful for some period of time to ensure that you're actually getting the level of disinfection that they're stating on the label. So it is fascinating. And I've learned more about this space than I ever thought I'd know. It's fascinating how complex it is. And I think that's one of the things that we're really trying to do at R0 as we build this brand and build our voice and our audiences is sort of be that middle ground where everything we do is rooted in science. And we take these relatively complex scientific and epidemiologic concepts and translate them into something that's more approachable for the end consumer and help them understand what does this really mean and and we think that's super important and we think that's a huge gap in the market right now And it's important because there are literally lives on the line here and people understanding the efficacy and and what the chemicals that they're using are actually doing and understanding how to use them and what the implications are if you don't use them as directed, that's super important for a consumer to know to be able to ensure the safety of their patrons or guests or employees or anybody else.
1: So I guess just sticking again with R0, what's been the hardest thing I imagine there's a number, but I mean, what's been some of the hardest things that we've gone through? Because I mean, it's been way more educational than I thought trying to understand this. And I think it's all top of your mind because maybe a year ago, you had no idea about any of this.
0: (laughs) That's a true statement. And we are so lucky to have Dr. Wade. He's been an incredible teacher and educator, but I'm a total nerd and I've fallen down the proverbial rabbit hole and I have more to learn and, and I'll keep learning. But this stuff's fascinating to me too. And it's stuff, these products that I've been interacting with my whole life and these things that I've been doing my whole life that I, I really didn't understand how they've worked under the hood. And being an engineer and really an engineer is how I categorize myself, but it's fascinating to me. I love this stuff.
1: So it's the hardest thing, I
0: guess. Oh, hardest thing. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't answer the question. Uh, I mean, I chuckled when you asked what the hardest thing. There's been so many challenges. I'll touch on a couple, personal and professional. Professionally, like I mean, we could do a whole nother podcast on the challenges and how we overcame them and, or, or how we didn't overcome some of them. But one of the hardest things with the business has been the growth, the employee growth. So we've doubled our employee base every month for the past couple of months. And being in a completely remote environment, it's incredibly difficult to build those personal connections between people and the ones that foster relationships, trust, communication, because you don't have that like water cooler conversation that's going on where you're passing somebody in a hall and you ask, hey, what did you do this weekend? Well, I guess that's a bad example because you can't really do anything on the weekends anymore. But point being like, you don't have this like, hey, how's your family? Like, what's your wife's name kind of thing. When you get on a Zoom conversation, really like only one person can be talking at a time. It's generally, I've, I've found that they're pretty transactional. And it's hard to establish those bonds between employees that are super meaningful and really actually do benefit the business in terms of how well we're collaborating and communicating. The other thing is just roles and responsibilities. Like six months ago, Ben, Eli, and I were doing everything. And today we have a team of 36 people total and those roles and responsibilities have shifted and they're changing every day. As we bring somebody new on, not only do we have to teach that person how to get up to speed, give them the context to be able to enable them to do the best work of their lives here at Art 0 but you also have to train the rest of the organization. Who do you go to for what? These new people that you need to include in certain meetings. So it's been incredibly difficult to do that. We've been I think largely successful, there's a ton of opportunity for improvement. So we've been experimenting with a whole bunch of different things as we go and we're not there yet, but we will get there. But yeah, growth has been incredibly challenging on a personal level. It's you have no life. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this like (laughs) diplomatically, but like if I keep doing this at the pace that I'm doing this at, and largely a lot of our team is doing the same thing, but I'm not going to have very many friends or family left over. I can't count the number of texts or emails or calls I didn't respond to. I can't tell you how many people have reached out to say like, hey, I love what you're doing and let's catch up soon. And like, I just haven't had time to respond and it breaks my heart and feels terrible. And I never want to be that person, that entrepreneur who people can say like, hey, he's changed. Like Grant has changed or whatever. The people that I've surrounded myself with my whole life are responsible for who I am and what I'm able to do here at Zero, And I just don't have time to maintain that many relationships anymore. So it's over the years I've learned it's important to identify the relationships that are most important to you and prioritize those ones. Because when times get tough, you need those people. And it's times like this where we're nose to the grindstone, heads down 120 hour weeks every single week for the last couple of months. It's times like this where you need to make time. You need to carve it out to still connect with these people that you love and that love you back because you're going to need them again someday. And uh, the other thing along those lines is just the actually, no, I guess I'll end there. What what else along those lines? Well, so the relationships are are certainly tough. If you're in business with friends, you're going to strain those relationships too. I've seen that in the past. I was actually going to say one of personal anecdotes, and this doesn't mean anything to anybody, but I guess it's a specific example of how relationships have suffered. But one of my biggest regrets in life to date, and we're going deep here, Austin. (laughs) One of my biggest regrets in life to date is not having a chance to go down to Australia to see my sister. She's lived there seven years, and I keep making excuses to put it off and putting it off and and not going down there she's come home and visited here a number of times but i miss my sister and i haven't it's completely my fault for not going down there and it's and i've always prioritized like hey work i've got this next milestone i've got this i gotta work this weekend or like whatever it is and i feel terrible about it and she had twins in February of this year, and I was finally going to do it, I swear. (laughs) Yeah, I believe you. (laughs) I had plane tickets, actually, to go down to Australia in March, and the day before my plane was supposed to take off, the lockdown happened, and they canceled all international flights and whatnot. So I kind of pulled the rug out from under my feet, but that is one of my biggest personal regrets in life is just, it's not making the time to go down there. Like I need to prioritize it.
1: Yeah, but I think you definitely even understand this time specifically, because, I mean, you had proof, too, that you had plane tickets, right? Yeah. And she's at least you have proof. It wasn't a bullshit excuse. You're like, no, but like, I really did. But think about it this way, too, man. What happens if you did make it down there? Wouldn't you be stuck there?
0: Yeah. My mom actually got stuck there and like her visa expired and she didn't know how she was going to get home and stuff. So it was crazy times, but she made it back. She's okay. But yeah, she was stuck down there indefinitely for a while. It's, we were like, when are we getting her home? I'm not sure. But
1: yeah, how long was she there?
0: I think six months ish, which is longer than you're supposed to stay.
1: Well, just think about it this way. I mean, if you would have gone, wouldn't even started this company, right? I mean, because you have been stuck there.
0: I've actually never thought about that. That's true. Or I would have started it from Australia and it would have been much more difficult.
1: I don't think you really could have really. I probably would have swam home. <laughs> yeah. Because like, I don't think you could have got like, as far as like the contacts and getting funding and everything, everything happens for a reason, right? and what happens if like how many lives you've saved right from r0 versus if you want to go see the twins if they were just born it's not like they're gonna remember you right then obviously you want to see them that's why you went down there but you know hopefully within six months from now whatever now you can and you've saved all these lives it's always a balance that's what with like every entrepreneur so i want to beat yourself up too much about it maybe in the past you made excuses but i would say at this point no and i think they'd be totally understanding and proud of you
0: yeah. Yeah. I know my sister loves me. I know that unequivocally and it's a personal thing.
1: Well, mine doesn't love me, so I understand. It's a personal thing for me. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> we should get her on the podcast. Let's talk about it.
1: <laughs> hey, yeah. I'll bring on an episode. We can have a family conversation with Grant.
0: Exactly. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention that's incredibly important personally, especially you know for this audience and something that I'll say that I haven't done particularly well, especially in this instance with R0, is taking care of yourself and your personal health is incredibly important. I've been a gym rat my whole life, gone to the gym religiously, worked out, ran, whatever, and I've been very healthy. In this business with this lockdown, like my Apple Watch reminds me 12 times a day that I haven't stood up, and there are days where I'll go without eating because I forget or I'm slammed in Zoom calls back to back all day or whatever, And for a while, I wasn't sleeping very well, wasn't eating well, wasn't exercising. And I've started to prioritize carving out the time. And it makes a huge difference in your ability to be productive and it affects your mood, it affects your memory, everything. And so it's incredibly important to do that. And oftentimes it doesn't seem like that's worthwhile, but it's an investment in yourself that's super high leverage and and something that I encourage any entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur to prioritize that along your journey. Because if you get it wrong and you burn out, crash and burn, it's a lot more detrimental to the company and to your journey. That'll set you back quite a bit, much more than spending 30 minutes a day exercising in some capacity.
1: Now, I'm feeling you on that. I think I brought this up one time before. I got lucky, dude. I got one of those adjustable Bowflex dumbbells probably six months before the pandemic. Oh, nice. Just because I'm like, I always wanted one and I'm like, and I have it where I can visually see it. So if you have them where you visually can see it, it makes it so much easier versus like, they're taunting you even if you had it in my garage. Yeah, exactly. So like even if you're just doing 15 pounds or you get something cheap or whatever, just that's not even like adjustable. Just enough to if you see it there and actually on my desktop, I've got like a black background, but I cut out this one PNG and put it on there. They show your brain idle and with no exercise. And then right next to it, I have something that shows it after like a 10 minute walk and how lit up your brain is. And that always reminds me. I get, so I always have those reminders everywhere. I don't know, maybe it's a suggestion. I guess you got the Apple watch suggestion, but you're like, maybe not listening to it as much, but sometimes visually seeing it without the technology factor, I think kind of helps
0: I love that. And then having a buddy, so to speak, to keep you accountable is huge. I'll give you an example. Uh, right now, so I live in San Francisco. We're about a mile away from Golden Gate Park. And my CFO is a good friend of mine too. And we put a meeting on the calendar. We call it our Wednesday running meeting. And we actually, it's a pun. I thought you liked puns, Austin. I that up.
1: <laughs> <You> Wednesday <laughs> running meeting?
0: <laughs> yeah, our running meeting.
1: Oh, I got dude. That was a ah, there? You're too smart yeah. for me. Too okay, sophisticated.
0: huh? no, I'm just a, I'm poor with my pun delivery. But anyway, we scheduled a, a meeting and we'll go run around Golden Gate Park and we end up talking entirely about the business and it's incredibly productive. But both of us get out and move a little bit and and I always feel better after it. I always have new perspective and it's a chance to align where it gives us a, an incredible amount of alignment as we do this weekly. So that having him hold me accountable is definitely a driver as well.
1: You still pick up his calls, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely, unless I don't want to run and it's ten minutes before we're supposed to head out. But no, he's incredible. We played the long game with him. He had actually—he's one of my best friends—and he was at me with me at my first company. He left the day we got acquired and went sort of the consultancy route. And he's doing sort of the CFO as a service kind of thing, where he'd drop in and you know, build the financial infrastructure of a company and really interesting model, but where they would take equity and then manage themselves out. So the company, they'd have an opportunity to see the financials of a company, which is the best diligence you could possibly do. So they decide, do we wanna take equity or cash in this company? and then they'd move on and their equity kind of stacks up and, and they're making money when they're not working there. In interesting way, that is a tangent. but So we actually hired his CFO as a service, so to speak. And I think he probably knows this, but the whole time, the long game was to actually hire him. So I knew that if we could get him exposed to the people that we had on the team and see how excited our customers were and see how much incredible speed and traction we were getting, that he would jump ship if we talked him into it. And that's what ended up happening. We had him work here for a month. And actually my co-founder Eli is the most excitable and lovable person in the entire world. I could you not, but we were trying to keep this under wraps and kind of strategize. Hey, when are we going to tell? When are we going to ask him and 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 try to make this sell and go pitch him and stuff. And we actually had decided like, hey, we're going to wait, you know, another month or whatever. And Eli was so excited that he spilled the beans. I remember he called me up. He's like, dude, I think I did something bad spilled the beans prematurely to Ryan and I asked him I told him we want to hire him and that ended up working out the next day I was like well if cat's out of the bag we want you what's it going to take and he's like I'm in so it was amazing to be able to trick him into working with us and having friends like that on board helps you get through the tough days and then also helps keep you accountable for running thanks for coming remember oh well I gotta thank uh, my business partner she signed me up because I've been talking
1: about you well awesome business partner I'm gonna have to use that as a plug to tell people to do the same thing
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. But anyway, yeah. Thanks for uh, setting this up. I get kind of the VIP
1: treatment, I feel like. (laughs) Well, like I said, I mean, I appreciate your time. Obviously, it's very valuable these days, and I appreciate you going even overboard. I was just so fascinated by the R0 that I think maybe a couple of years or whatever, we can come have another episode with you as far as what you did before this and then what's happened with R0. Yeah you got to take advantage while you can of you working these hours, to be honest. I mean, I want to hurt yourself because like you said, you're helping people too, right? So it's just like, if you did this 10 years down the line, it's not going to have near the opportunity. So you got to take advantage of the opportunity while you can, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, we have this unique moment in time right now, where we'll, We have an opportunity to make an impact at scale. And you mentioned saving lives a couple of minutes ago. And I have no doubt in my mind that we've saved a handful of lives, whether that's one or one million, I'm not sure. But the other thing we've done is sort of alleviate some of the psychological scar tissue that results from this thing and make people feel safe as well. And that helps people get back into these buildings and stuff. So you're right. I've probably only got a couple of years left with this many hours. There's a bunch of gas left in the tank for sure. But it's been an absolute blast. But you know, Austin, I wanted to say too, thank you for the work that you do. And, and thank you for putting on this podcast. R0 is not my first entrepreneurial endeavor. It took a long way to get here and we can do another podcast on all the trials and tribulations along the way. But I benefited from listening to content like the content that you produce. And and I've been inspired by entrepreneurs. and And being able to hear people tell their stories and be real about them and be able to relate to them as an entrepreneur makes it much less lonely. It makes the journey more fun and more successful. So thank you so much for putting this podcast on and hopefully inspiring other entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for being a wonderful guest. I guess you aren't the guy who left... One of our recent reviews that says the host is not a very good interviewer. <laughs> so, so at least I at least I can cancel you out. me. Maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe
2: it was I your d- sister. Yeah, yeah, probably. Or my mom is one. Or yeah. my wife. Like
1: I said, yeah. Thanks for coming on and sharing your story, man. Like it's very exciting to hear some a company that's blowing up like yours is right now. And as we close off, I mean, did you have any other last words of wisdom for anybody? And maybe what's the best way for someone to be a LinkedIn connection with you because we know you aren't going to return our emails.
0: So. <laughs> Probably a good call. I my inbox is a disaster and I'm an inbox zero guy, so
1: oh god, it makes me anxious. <laughs> yeah, I I'm, uh, I'm always less than 10. Yeah, I go in there and just I'm feeling you.
0: Yeah, find me on LinkedIn, Grant Morgan at R0, but you, you can email me, no guarantees I'll get back to you, but grant@r0systems.com. And yeah, so I think I've had an incredible time on this podcast. Austin, I'm happy to come back and talk anytime about R0. I could talk about R0 all day. So, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, man. Well, thanks for coming on. This was fun. It was very candidly, that was my first podcast. I loved how you got into the science and it was, we got the journey in there. And so it was, I thought that was comprehensive and hopefully it inspires people. But is there a way for me after you release this thing? I don't know if you get feedback on specific podcasts or anything. But if you do, is there a way to pass that along? Because I'd love to just hear if anybody has thoughts of like about me personally or questions even or or thoughts about the business or whatever. I, I don't know if you get that type of inbound where people are either critical or, or they're saying like, hey, you should do this or what about this?
1: Oh, for sure. So yeah, I guess so if anyone will connect with you on LinkedIn and send you a message, that's what I tell most people to do. I mean, because it's in the LinkedIn message, hopefully they give you to say thanks for doing the interview. But if anyone ends up leaving a review or something and say, put some kind words or sends me an email about your episode, I always forward it because I want to help you out too. So I guess they can again, email you. And what was your email again?
0: My email is grant at com. And you spell the zero out in letters
1: yeah if y'all can go ahead and reach out to grant through a linkedin message or whatever way to give him feedback sounds like he'd appreciate that so cool so that's perfect yeah i'm glad you said that so now you hopefully you should get some more feedback
0: awesome i love hearing from users or potential users or like if you think you have the best ideas in the world you're wrong the the best ideas and the hardest problems get solved by a group of smart people all over the place and so very open to ideas thoughts criticisms anything really And you gotta keep your ear to the ground you gotta listen. Gotta be good at taking feedback and then actually do something with it.
1: Are you looking for more product based interviews? Well, don't worry, mother effer. I got you. Here's five awesome suggestions just for you. Try episode 135 with Jim Kalb of Optifuse, or an old favorite, episode 24 with Starfire Direct. Another one, try episode 127. That's 127, with Doug Booten, the founder of Halo Top Ice Cream, which I'm sure you've seen in your local supermarket. Another oldie but goodie, episode 34, with Don DiCostenza of Pedego Electric Bikes. And last but not least, the touching story in episode 98 with Ann Head. And hey, while you're exploring our awesome back catalog of episodes, why don't you consider becoming a Patreon member? We've got secret patreon episodes in the product industry like patreon episode number 29 where i interviewed the founder of fatheads or patreon episode 3 where i talked with rick martinez about succeeding in the cannabis industry just check your notes below on how to get these secret episodes right now